So we're going to continue on in our series in um, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah. We only have two more weeks. I'm excited for that. Um, I like things to come to a close. And um, yeah, so we're going to uh, read not all of the list of names. We're not going to read 10,000 names, but uh, we are going to touch on a few. So this morning, I invite you to stand if you're able, uh, Nehemiah 11, 1 through 4, and then we'll skip over a couple pages to Nehemiah 12, 27 through 30. And don't worry, we'll cover those names, hopefully in a unique way. Uh, That's honoring to them. So Nehemiah 11, starting at verse 1, reads, The leaders of the people were living in Jerusalem, the holy city. A tenth of the people from their own towns of Judah and Benjamin were chosen by sacred lots to live there too, while the rest stayed there where they were. And the people commended everyone who volunteered to resettle in Jerusalem. Here is a list of the names of the providential officials who came to live in Jerusalem. Most of the people, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants, continue to live in their own homes in various towns of Judah. But some of the people from Judah and Benjamin resettled in Jerusalem. From the tribe of Judah, Anath, son of Yusa, son of Zechariah, son of Armin, son of Sepathiah, son of Melahi, of the family of Perez. Now, if you turn to Nehemiah 12, there towards the end, we'll read a couple of verses there. Nehemiah 12 at verse 27. And it continues with, For the dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem, the Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist in the ceremonies. They were to take part in the joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers were brought together from the region around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nepotites. They also came from Beth Gilgal, the rural areas of Gibba, Esmeth, for the singers had built their own settlement around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites first purified themselves. Then they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. A brief prayer. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you that we are able to gather Thank you for your spirit that comes and illuminates the scripture to us so we can understand. Pray that you help us prepare our hearts to receive your word this morning. We're excited. We also continue to pray for the other churches who proclaim Jesus as Lord. We just pray for their service as well. So Lord, will you use me as you see fit? Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. And we will be careful to give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. I'm not sure if you were concerned if I was going to read the whole list of names. I was concerned. Um, and I had pract- I think I only read seven names, and I, I practice. And, and just, just so you know, I'm a big, big fat cheater. I uh, pressed play on the Bible app like 13 times this week to get it down, and it's rough. Um, so much for taking all that Hebrew class for three years. I didn't. <laughs> I think I need my money back. Anyways, but when we go through a list, what's interesting is uh, what I've noticed is I enjoy a list if my name is on it. Uh, I remember in junior high and seventh grade, I tried out for basketball and I ran to see my name posted on the gym. No, it must be on the other list. 
Well, I didn't care. My name wasn't on the list. I didn't make the team. Hockey's better anyways. Um, but even, even list, even when, when, even when we watch movies, the end credits, who here sits through the end credits unless there's like a spoiler at the very end, right? Sometimes you do. I remember like in the, I would look through some of the movies, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Up front, they front loaded all of the names to make you watch the names. Now at the end, they put a little spoiler, a little Easter egg or whatever they call so you stay and read it and Every once in a while, perhaps, if you're like me, you look for the most unique name, just random. Or perhaps um, lists are important to you because they remind you of something significant. Maybe your name doesn't have to be on it, but uh, someone significant to you, their name is on it. Whenever you go to a cemetery and you look for a name of a loved one, that's important. Or perhaps if the person you may not even know, but they made a significant impact throughout history. The list at the 9-11 memorial, the World War II memorial, the list goes on. That's exciting. But whenever I read those lists, at some point, it, it, it becomes daunting and a little bit emotional because it represents a sacrifice. And, and granted, we are about roughly 3,000 and change years away from when this list was written uh, through Ezra and Nehemiah, and we look through those names and and we think, man, why, why, do, why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? And even when we go through the genealogy, we know all God's word is, is, is for rebuke. It's for good for us. It's all inspired by God. It's all from God. But yet names, they're just, they're just tough. And, and really, if we're honest, that ministry can be tough. And then you see people, and then just even considering Thais this morning, her legacy and how many people that she impacted. Her name means a lot to a lot of people. But to some, they won't know the name. But if we just consider what list means, they just represent what God has done in people's lives. Small, insignificant things are huge, big things. There are churches that I visit um, that they have all of the pastors over the several hundred years or however long the church was with all of the pastors that's ever been. Whenever I did jury duty, we thought I wasn't going to bring up jury duty every again, did you? Uh, you walk through the halls and you see all of the judges that were at Stan, Stanislaus Court of Appeals and all the other ones and looking at all the names and looking at the guys with the big pork chops and kind of get inspired and then you come home and your wife says no, but whatever. But like you, you just, you, you, you look at all these names and you got to find things that just fill your time, I guess. We don't have the yellow pages necessarily anymore, but going through that and you just look at names and you randomly call names and then hang up on them. Like, I don't know if you did that, but I did that and then caller ID ruined it. But, but there's all these names and recognition and I was considering what is it about names? Why, why would God have this in here and I actually titled my message this morning about when we worship together and considering all these names that appear before us and that somehow we're linked to or we're part of the family of God. So they're in, they're, they are important. But then considering what worship means, and worship isn't just music. I love music. Worship is not just the word. I love the word. Worship's fellowship. We're going to have lunch. That's Worship, everything can be worship. But I think sometimes what prevents us from truly worshiping is we're concerned 
we won't get recognition. I mean, some other people hate recognition. Our, our next series, I don't want to do spoiler alert, is called Encounters with Jesus. And I, I hope people will be willing to share a testimony. But I can even tell looking at you, you looked away because you're afraid I'm going to call on you to come up here. But even, I would suggest, even the person who is the most awkward in public, most introverted person, probably wants some recognition, maybe not up front, but just a thank you. And I don't think that's wrong. I think what can be wrong is when we stride to worship God in hopes that we get recognition. So I was challenged a couple years ago, several years now if I think about it, uh, by uh, a professor that I had who, who taught um, many different courses that I took, and one was about um, uh, the discipline of man or woman and just, just working on yourself through God's grace. Um, and just you can't preach what you don't live, you get the point. And one of the questions, he, the challenges that he wrote, and I went back and looked, he said, he said this, I wonder how I would worship. He said, ask yourself this question. I wonder how I would worship and serve God. I wonder how I would worship and serve God if I didn't worry about what other people thought or if I didn't worry about getting recognition. I wonder how I would worship and serve God if I didn't worry about what other people thought or if I got recognition or not. That's a a stinging question. I remember... I, we could just tell each other stories of so many times where we did something, we just waited around. You do the dishes once in your life for your wife, and you talk about how great it was to wash two pants. Like, get over yourself. But truly, if you consider it, I, I do wonder, and I still wonder that. Do, what would I do different if I didn't worry about what other people thought or if I got recognition or not? And what in a world that we live in where personality and looks are key, so important, tends to be the number one thing that we look for in a person. What kind of personality do they have? Are they super outgoing? How do they look? One of the interns that I had whenever I was doing family ministry, youth ministry specifically, I had one of the interns. He was the smartest person I have ever met. Like he could literally read every name that I overlooked and skipped over perfectly. He was just a brilliant guy. He, he, his, his ability to connect things from Old Testament to New Testament was ridiculous. The problem, though, was when he stood in front of you to tell you, he would talk. And then whenever he would go and interview for his resume would look good, he, questionnaires he would answer, and then when he, you, you'd interview him, it was much of the same. It took a while for someone to notice, hey, there's something about this guy that we need, and we're going to overlook his personality, and we're going to overlook that he whispers, and we can work on that. But initially, church after church, ministry after ministry, they overlooked him because His personality wasn't what they were looking for, an upfront, dynamic speaker. So as we consider this, what what I'm hoping to do is just just think about, and and what I wrote down, and it's not original, it's from G.K. Chesterton. I've been on a 
G.K. Chesterton kick lately, and, and he c- continues to talk about how important it is to be small rather than big, which is ironic because he was about six foot four and 350 pounds. And, and I love his reading. If you haven't read his book, Orthodoxy, I recommend it. it, it he's the one who inspired C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and, and, and all those guys to write. And he was just a brilliant man. And, and, and what he really struggled with in life was just trying to be smaller. And he would joke around. He was a funny guy. He wrote the series Father Brown, if that means anything to people. He just wrote about how small he wanted to be, and his wife would so graciously remind him that he's too big to be small, and it was back and forth. And he was really good friends with a man named Kipling, Rudyard Kipling. He's the one who wrote the, the poem, If. It's a great poem. I'll just read you just a couple of lines just to, to, to grasp it. Um, this is all in the 1800s, early 1900s, and, and this is if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can make one heap of all the winnings and risk it into one turn of the pitch and toss, if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, and he continues on, and then he ends it and says, with, uh, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance running, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. And you may be familiar with that poem. I only read bits and pieces of it because uh, Morgan Freeman read it and Michael Caine and people who have cool voices read it. And, and, um, but G.K. Chesterton wrote a reply to him. And I do think they were friends. I can't confirm it, but just the way they talked about it. And he said, you're trying to spend your life being big, you small man, and I'm trying to spend my life being small, a large man. And in one of his small writings, G.K. Chesterton, it's called A Tremendous Trifle, and he gives an analogy, and he writes about an analogy, and he talks about these two boys are given a chance to be either giants or tiny. He calls them pygmies, and one boy decides to be a giant, and he's so big that whenever he goes to Niagara Falls, it just looks like a little faucet, and whenever he goes to the high peaks of the mountains, he just looks and almost kicks him over. He's just bored. And eventually it goes on and it tells how he lays down and then he eventually is slayed because all giants are supposed to be slayed. Then there's another boy that chooses to be small and he shrinks down to the smallest little person. And then it says his front yard becomes a miraculous place. And being so small, he notices things for the first time. Chief of which, he doesn't have to be the big man. He recognizes God is the big man. And he goes on and he continues and he writes to to Kipling about, again, you know, you want to be a big man, I want to be a little man. But then he gives this warning and he says, he says, this is what Satan tempted our Savior with on the mountaintop. Do you want to be a big man? Essentially is what he's asking Jesus. And of course, Jesus replies and doesn't bow down to Satan. And then he he, G.K. Chesterton, ends his little writing by saying, choose to be small, to be in the comfort of God's hand. So if we go back to that question and consider, I wonder how I would worship and serve God if I didn't worry about what other people thought or if I didn't get any recognition if I was simply content in my Father's hand. So as we look through these lists 
And consider these people meant something to someone, chiefly to Christ. And as we consider just real quick, as we walk through just the beginning of Nehemiah 11, 1 through 4, I just want to point out one thing that I overlooked the first few times I read through it. It talks about the leaders living in Jerusalem, the holy city, and it says a tenth of the people from the other towns in Judah and Benjamin were choosing by scattered lots to live there too, while the rest stayed where they were. See, they had built this big temple. They built this great city. The walls are now built. We've gone through all the hardship, and now no one wanted to live there. It's like having this giant cathedral of a building, and no one wanted to go there. They wanted to stay where they were. They actually wanted to stay out away from it for several reasons. One reason is they could make more money if they tend to their own crops, their own vineyards. They also didn't have to worry about any incoming attack because once you have something nice, people like it. But here's the thing that I, I, I missed. They threw sacred lots. So I spent a lot of time looking at sacred lots and I thought, oh, that's all voodoo stuff. But before the Holy Spirit... Uh, was in people permanently when you accept Christ in the Old Testament, God sent his spirit to people for a time. Now that we live in post-Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit that dwells in us when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. But at that time, they chose sacred lots. They threw dice or bones or wooden planks or it depends where they lived. And that was how they determined people would live there. See, the thing is, is there was about 11,000 people there, and no one wanted to live in the city. Some people said, yep, we'll do it. We'll give up everything. And then some other people had to lose the dice, the roll of the dice. So here's a list of people, and I read the first few names from verse 3 and 4, a list of some of the people. Some of the people said, yeah, I'll give up everything to come and serve the Lord here in Jerusalem. But some people came because they lost the dice, the roll of the dice. No, I'm not suggesting you go home and roll dice. Don't do that. I'm just simply saying these people lost out. So, And then it goes on for, for the rest of Nehemiah 11, and then most of Nehemiah 12 is a list of name after name after name and what they did and how they did it and why it was important. And yet there's recognition, but for most of us, so what? They're just names that you're not going to read. And so I was considering what the significance of serving the Lord, even if you don't get recognition. Here are some of the things people have mentioned why they don't serve or really don't get involved or, or don't serve the Lord. And this is not a cry for help to serve at Renew. You should. You should serve somewhere. Should serve at your church. Serve the Lord ultimately is what you're doing. Um, but one of the things, chiefly, do you know how busy I am? I am so busy. Do you know how many children I have? You want me to show up and do what? I lead all these things at work, and I do this on my kids' team, and I do this in the city, and I do this, and you want me to lead what? I will make a plug, join a life group. Or other people said, No, I don't want to teach or preach or do anything with spiritual matters because I don't want the extra judgment. Alistair Begg, I appreciate it. He said, many people want a scepter in their hand, but no one wants a plunger. (laughs) 
And one of the things I was talking to a friend uh, just within the last couple of weeks, and he mentioned that some people have to- had told him they just want an easy on-ramp and an easy exit. What, how long do I have to? And when do I get to stop? But as we consider these lists, just what, their significance of how they served the Lord and what it meant and and, and, and really, I, this list that I put together to put on the screen in just a moment, I, I stole from Alistair Begg and John Scott, and I kind of just combined it together. So it's not, not an original thought, but what I appreciated is the way to consider the interview of the people. So I put the people into groups and what they did. And I won't attempt to read all the names, but we'll just look at the, the verses. So we can bring up the, the slide here. In Nehemiah 11, from verse 2 and 11, these are the people that lived in Jerusalem. You can look through and look at all the names. Some of them, they raised their hand and said, yep, I'll go. Some of the people, they lost the the game of dice, and then they had to move in. So these people from Nehemiah 11, verse 2 and 11, just lived in the city. Now, like I mentioned, that Alistair Begg and Stott, they did it, they considered, let's pretend that we're going down live and we're interviewing people. And you go down and you find people and say, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am, what, what are you doing for the kingdom of God? And they would say, oh, we live in Jerusalem. Great, what else? No, we just, we just we're just here. Like, we moved in. Oh, Thanks, we'll find somebody else. And then you go and interview somebody else. Excuse me, sir or ma'am, uh, what did you do? What are you doing for the kingdom of God? Oh, we played some dumb dice game and we lost, so here we are. Fantastic, great, thanks. Anyone else, anyone else do anything important here? So from, the, from verse 2 and 11, these people just simply moved in Jerusalem. If you want to modernize it, who here would be willing to give up their home to move into the city or who would be willing to give up their home in the city and move in the country? I can see the angry faces, right? I consider and I think about missionaries who go around the world and they are there to make a difference for Christ, but many times they have to go run in Djibouti, or they have to get another job. I have a friend who sells shoes in another country to give him an opportunity to have people come to him. It's like a shoe salesman in another country. So what did you do here? I moved. I, I, I showed up. That's what I did for the kingdom of God. Well, that's not great recognition. Why is your name even on the list? And I'm not saying just showing up is all that matters. Showing up matters. Whenever you say you're going to do something, show up. Show up on your Wednesday night or Saturday night, whenever you have life group, whenever you're doing whatever ministry. Showing up is half the battle. And I can attest to someone who didn't grow up with a father, showing up is half the battle. So showing up. Let's look at the next list list of people. Verses 12 through 15. Here is the list of all the people that worked in Jerusalem. 822. Now th- consider this interview. Excuse me, ma'am or sir, what are you doing here in Jerusalem? Oh, I work. Oh, you work for the Lord? You work at church? No, I just started my apple farm here. They didn't have apples, but you get the point. I just, I just started working. 
No, I started, you know, metalwork. I had one way out over all the way on the other side of Judah, and, and we moved in, and I can do the same work here. I'm just here. I'm here to help things go. Okay, well, that, thanks. That's great. Moving on. Hey, excuse me, ma'am or sir, what did, you, what did you do here? Oh, well, we also work here. Well, what do you do? Oh, you know, well, uh, we clean the toilets. That's our job. Yeah, I've moved my business to be closer. God had called us. I can imagine someone being interviewed. Yeah, for, for 90 years and then 70 years before that, we had been waiting for this moment, and I don't have anything to offer, but I can clean a toilet. So here I am, 822, and if you keep reading, then there's sub-assistants, 125, 135. You mean you don't even have a job. You just work for a guy who works for a guy. Yes, that's, that's me, and I'm, I'm on that list. Look at verse 16, people who served in Jerusalem. Oh, now, now we're getting to a list that we kind of like a little bit better. Oh, excuse me, ma'am or sir, how is it mo- why'd you move to Jerusalem? Oh, I came to serve. Oh, you didn't start a business? No, I just came to help clean up, mop up, do things around here. I just, I'm just here to serve. I actually own a vineyard, but I come into town every day to see where I can help someone else out. When Nellie and I and the kids, well, we didn't have all of our kids. We only had two of the three. Moved to Kansas City. There was one guy, his name was Alvin, and he worked for the railroad, the Kansas City Railroad, the Santa Fe he worked on Santa Fe trains, and he looked like a guy that was from the railroad. I don't know. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but you could tell that he was a, he was a railroad man. That's how he said it. He had the coolest beard, too. Anyways, you know what that guy did? With two replaced hips, every Sunday morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, he'd come and mop all the floors everywhere, in the bathroom, in the kitchen, everywhere. And it's not because he didn't mop them on Friday, he just said, I like things to smell good when you first show up. He also trimmed bushes when no one would look. He would wait until obscure times because he was so worried that he'd get some kind of credit. So I did ask him one day, hey, why do you do this when no one's around? He said, I really struggle with pride. I get a lot of recognition at the railroad already. I've been there for 30-something years. And it goes to my head, and I'm afraid it'll go to my head here. So you don't tell anybody. Yes, sir, railroad man. Uh, But you think about that. You think about that. Uh, The people who serve, I'll pick on the people in the back who are doing sound and slides. I mean, God bless them, but you don't recognize them until all of a sudden it goes, and then Travis and Mike are doing their whole thing and pointing at me. Hey, turn it on, dummy. Okay, thanks. Right? When you're singing a song and the slides are going and you miss the lyrics and you look back. I had that job one time, but I was too busy worshiping. <laughs> Where are we at? I mean, you show up and there's no coffee. Like we take for granted that there's coffee every Sunday, but if there's not coffee, who is in charge? Where's my donuts? I mean, really, it, it's true. Oh, I just came to bring donuts to renew. Don't give me recognition. Don't tell them. But just consider the people who have served you that would never want credit. Again, going back to Kansas City, as someone from Southern California who experienced their first winter with snow, that was new. 
And apparently you do not shovel your snow the first time it snows because it's going to snow again the next day. So as a, well, I won't tell you what they called me because it wasn't very nice, but they told me that I can go back to California if I stop shoveling snow incorrectly. But there was guys who realized that I was breaking my back shoveling snow every day. And then one guy was kind enough and says, you got to wait a week. You're going to get burnt out. I was like, oh, it's okay, I like it. He said, okay. So then he brings out his automatic snow plow and moves everything for me. But just served. Just served. You know what's sad is I didn't even realize that he attended our church for a long time because he was always just working around the church. He'd show up in the back. He'd be one to leave, make sure if it snowed while we were in service, the road was salted. Didn't even know. But think about the people who serve you, who has served you. Their name's on that list. Verse 17 and 18, going back to that interview. Excuse me, sir or ma'am, what are you doing here in Jerusalem? Oh, we prayed. We're the praying bunch. We show up every day to pray. We pray all day long. And what else did you do? You bum? What's your job? No, I'm a professional prayer. I prayed. You know the people that you run to for prayer? You know those people that you know that when they say they pray for you, they'll pray for you? Or, or maybe even they're the awkward people that if you see them at the grocery store and say, yeah, you can pray for me, and they pray for you right then and there, and you're looking around like, people are going to see. Those are the people. How many, how many, I can't even count how many times people have, I don't even know the amount of times people have prayed for me. Alistair Begg, when he's put his list together, he said, the undergirth of people's prayer has carried me further than I will ever know. It's the truth. But you know those people that you'll call them in immediately when something happens to pray. So what did you do, sir? I prayed. Ma'am, I prayed. That was my job. I came to pray. Some may ask, well, why did you pray? Well, you know, for a long while, the Israelites, we didn't pray. We didn't do what we were supposed to do. And I am going to be on my hands and knees and praying that we are faithful. Think about the people who have prayed for you, that you've been literally carried by their prayers. Verse 19 and 21, I wrote, people who were on guard in Jerusalem, they ran the security detail. You know we have a security team here. I won't point them out to you because that's scary. They might get me. But but there are people here who patrol. They're on guard. It's it's the time where you don't appreciate them until they ward off someone who tried to break in your car during service. Oh, excuse me, ma'am or sir, what did did you do here? Oh, we, we guarded this gate. From this time to this time, they would take six-hour shifts and then trade out at multiple points, at multiple points of the gates and multiple points to all the roads coming into Jerusalem. So you moved all the way here to be a security guard. Yes. What else do you do? No, I just make sure that you get home safely. They're on this. It's interesting. The list for those who prayed covers two verses. The list of those who were on guard covers three verses. And then the next one, verse 22. Excuse me, ma'am or sir, why are you here in Jerusalem? What drew you here? Oh, we're the singers. Oh, great. You just walk around singing all day? No, we organize worship to the Lord. 
If you look at that name, just, just for a fun note, if you're ever on, on Jeopardy, these are the great-grandchildren of King David. These are the great-grandchildren of King David who sung. David sung with all of his might. Whenever they would go into battle, he'd jump up and down and praise the Lord like no one's business. King David was a, a great many things to a great many people, but he was a worshiper of God. So why did you come? Oh, because my dad is a singer. My grandfather's a singer. My great-granddad is actually King David, and he's taught us to sing, so we are here to worship. And you can spend your time and look, because what they would do is they would organize, whenever, you go, whenever we go down and, and finish out verse, uh, chapter 12, they would organize groups of people to sing. So this side would sing one verse, and this side would sing back that same verse, back and forth. They would sing. They would go around the walls and sing, which is interesting if you remember that one of the criticisms was that a fox could jump on the wall and knock it down. But now we have about 10,000 people at this dedication service on the wall singing back and forth. And they're, they're worshiping. And they'd sing a verse and they'd sing a verse. And they would sing a verse and they would sing a verse. And they would go around and they were dedicating the wall. And that's what we read there at the dedication of the Jerusalem wall. If you turn to Nehemiah 12, 27 and 30, for the dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem, the Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist the ceremonies because only Levites could lead that. We talked about that last week because the Levites were the only ones who did not worship the golden calf. So they were set apart. And dedication does mean set apart. That's why whenever we do children dedication, baby dedication, we are setting them part apart for the Lord. When you are to be holy, you are to set apart from the rest of the world. This couldn't be done without the priest. But more importantly, this could not have been done if the people didn't live there, if the people didn't work in Jerusalem, if the people didn't serve in Jerusalem. They weren't praying. They weren't on guard if there weren't singers. Josephus and his history of the Jews, he records that the Jews who did come, who were the Levites, that came to worship there, that Nehemiah actually built himself with his own money a home for each one of those priests outside of the Jerusalem wall because they were not allowed to technically live because they were never blessed with land but only the tabernacle. So Nehemiah outside of the walls with his own money built a house for anyone who needed it. Well, it's not in here. He didn't get the recognition. Because really what, what's happening here is, is the worship of God takes on a lot of different places from a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. Now, it may be, some may be sitting here considering what's easy for you to say because you're up front and we know your name and but that's what you have to worry, that's what I have to worry for, to concern myself. Is this about me or is this about God? But even for those who are run the security or who are the prayer, prayer warriors in our church, have to be worried, am I doing this for me or for the Lord, for recognition or not? And you can read through Matthew 6 whenever he talks about, when he talks about whenever you are uh, in the streets praying for attention, that's where your reward is. Whenever you are 
whenever you are taking time away, set apart. Whenever you're not eating anything, wash your face. Don't go out for public recognition. Just do it unto the Lord. When you go pray, go into your closet and pray. Because God is faithful. He recognizes all that we do for him. And if we are reminded that he doesn't need us but invites us in, what a blessing it is. In Hebrews 6, verse 10, he, he says, For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love for him by caring for other believers as you still do. Just worship the Lord. And if you have an opportunity to serve in some way, then do it. Because really, worship of God begins in the heart, well before the singing, well before the message, well before the sweeping of the floor, well before guard duty, before we get on our knees to pray. Worship always begins in the heart. And I would suggest that if we are worried about recognition or what other people think, then what we're doing is we're worrying about other people in our heart before God. So I'll close with this, just this consideration as I was going through this list and of people. And Joseph Stonewell, he's Dr. Stonewell. He was the president of Moody Bible Institute for about 15 years, and he did a lot of study of D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody is perhaps the most influential pastor in America, evangelist in the 1800s. And I do quote him from time to time, and I love his stories of humility that we didn't find out until well after he died. But this Joseph Stowell, Dr. Stowell, he put together this, this lineage of the impact of ministry that it can have on someone. And I'll summarize what he said. He said, D.L. Moody, a famous evangelist that many people know from Illinois. Well, D.L. Moody was out and he was preaching one day and he came across a man named Wilbur Chapman. And Wilbur Chapman, if you know church history, he was a great evangelist in the early 1900s. But he didn't know Christ until he met D.L. Moody. Then a couple of years later, Wilbur Chapman was so convicted that he should continue to share his faith. So he was walking down Chicago one Sunday afternoon and he trailed what was called the gospel wagon. At those times, the gospel wagon came from the gospel mission and they would just come down the road, particularly lined with bars, taverns, and just preach the gospel. Well, one day, this Wilbur Chapman was going down and one afternoon he saw a young man leaning against the wall and he was just about to go into a bar, and this young man actually played for the Chicago White Stockings. They weren't quite the White Sox yet. He was sitting outside, and he invited him in to uh, talk about Christ, and he leads this young man to Christ. His name is Billy Sunday. Anyone heard of Billy Sunday? Billy Sunday is a baseball player, and he would not play baseball on Sunday for the Sabbath. Well, he played two more years professional baseball, and then he ends up being instrumental in the YMCA. And then from there, he met a man, another Chapman, on the when Wilbur Chapman came back, same man, excuse me, he was coming back, he invited Billy Sunday to join him in his uh, evangelistic efforts. Billy says, sure, what do you want me to do? He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go down the road, and I want you to prepare all these drunks. And get them sobered up. So by the time I come in and present the gospel, they'll hear the gospel and they won't be drunk. 
So as he's doing this and he's considering this, he says, okay, I'll do it. So Billy Sunday, former baseball player, people are like, hey, you're Billy Sunday. He says, yeah, let me tell you about Jesus. They're like, uh. So he speaks to him long enough. And then next thing you know, Wilbur Chapman circles back around and presents the gospel. And Wilbur says, you know what? Actually, I'm called to be a pastor. Will you take this over? He said, no, I'm just more of like the front man, just to get him going. He goes, no, you can do it. He does it. So Billy Sunday eventually continues on in this missionary journey. And one day he runs into a man that's going into a bar named Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham came to Christ. One of Billy Sunday's evangelistic efforts. Mordecai Ham is so moved, he goes down to the south and he starts his own evangelistic crusades. And one day there's this one young man who says to his friend, hey, you want to go to this evangelistic crusade? He says, no, thank you. He says, I'll buy you dinner. He goes, yeah, I could go. He goes and he eats and they go to this evangelistic crusade and that boy who didn't want to go, but he only showed up because there was a free dinner, he accepts Christ. We know this man is Billy Graham. And I probably don't have to tell you what Billy Graham did. I'm sure I don't have to tell you because perhaps you've been impacted by him or your family member has. Billy Graham, perhaps the greatest evangelist in the modern era, and I think it would be safe to assume that he's done a lot of good work. But the story doesn't end there. Dr. Stowell, who put this list together, he said the timeline, he said the timeline or the family tree of the Christians in life that we come together, we should actually begin at the beginning. So D.L. Moody started this, and it goes down and down and down and down, and it goes all the way to Billy Graham, but who led D.L. Moody to Christ? His Sunday school teacher. His Sunday school teacher was determined to visit all of the boys in the Sunday school class. He wanted a relationship with them beyond Sunday morning. So he went to where each of these young men worked at when they were 14, 15, 16 years old and just asked them one simple question, where do you stand in relationship with Jesus Christ? He walks into a shoe store, ironically, and there's D.L. Moody working. He brings him in the back. He says, D.L., Dwight, Layman, Moody, where do you stand with your relationship with Christ? He goes, well, I guess I don't know. He leads him to Christ. Right then and there, D.L. Moody accepts Christ because of a Sunday school teacher. What was his name? Who knows? Who cares? Christ knows. Christ cares. Christ loves. That man's name was Edward Kimball. But who saved Edward Kimball? I mean, this list can keep on going and going, but I won't go that far. But why did Edward do it? Because there's a pastor at D.L. Moody's church when he wasn't saved that challenged all of his Sunday school leaders, hey, why don't you just go around and visit him beyond Sunday? And I looked and I looked and I looked, and I couldn't find his name, because the name doesn't matter. Who cares? But that pastor who challenged that small church, all three Sunday school leaders to go talk to their kids beyond Sunday, ended up leading all the way to Billy Graham. But the question is, Is their name on any list? No one knows, no one cares, but God knows, God cares. That man, that pastor that can't find his name, died without his name on the plaque, but had an impact. Who knew that faithful man? People right around him, but never looked for recognition. 
So I just probably doesn't have to take too much to, for you to consider. Who is it that led you to the Lord for those who are a believer in Christ? What was his name? If I tell you the name of Jerry Fishback, does that mean anything to you? No, it means everything to me. He was the man who stepped in when I didn't have a father and led me to the Lord. This man worked at J.C. Penney, and he was faithful, and he showed up every Sunday to these small group of boys. God bless them, because we were the worst Sunday school class ever. He gave all nine, except for me, a job at J.C. Penney, moving stuff, merchandise in the middle of the night, and they say, all but me, because the other nine guys broke so many things, I didn't get a chance to get a job there. But Jerry Fishback led me to the Lord and continued to. Still works. He's retired now. You say, wow, J.C. Penney. Who cares? He was faithful. So I just challenge you with that question, that opening question that I was challenged with. How would you worship and serve God if you didn't worry about what other people thought or if you didn't get any recognition? Because ultimately, all that we do is for the Lord. He's the one who's faithful. So we are going to receive communion here, and you're invited to join us to receive communion if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and we'll sing three songs, and some of the guys will come out and pass out the elements, and we'll receive it together. But just consider just where are you at? First, consider who, who, who is it that led you to the Lord or really drove home that point to you or, or discipled you? And then the other one is, is that very same question, how would you serve right now? How would you worship right now if you didn't worry about what other people thought or if you didn't worry if you got recognition or not? For God is faithful. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time and your word. And as we come to a list of names, sometimes it can be so daunting and, and it's easy to skip over. And, and though we didn't read the names, we do recognize that those people who were faithful led to people who were faithful, who led to people who were faithful. And ultimately, Lord, through your word and through your spirit and through the, the, the heart of the believers, we've come to know you. And ultimately, we've come to know you because of what your son did. You made a way when there was no way. So, Lord, will you challenge us to serve regardless of where we're at, big or small, up front or behind closed doors, Lord? We just pray that if any of us, all of us who deal with any kind of pride or sense of of uh, self-recognition that you'd, you'd do away with that because ultimately we want to serve you and we want to see people come to know you. We thank you for the gifts and the abilities that you've given us to be able to use for your glory. We pray we are not stingent on that, that we don't hide them. So Lord, we thank you and we um, just look forward to the day of your return or when you call us home. So we thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.